Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're back with Jason Haas, second generation proprietor of Tablas Creek Vineyard in Paso Robles. And we're going to be talking about alternative packaging. Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. So obviously, if anybody who wants to hear the whole background of Jason and Tablas Creek, please check out our previous episode. But today, we're going to be talking about your recent announcement that you're going to be releasing the most expensive box wine available, a three liter which is essentially four centered bottles in a bag in a box format of your rosé priced at $95. I'm curious, what was your inspiration for making this change? We have already released it and sold it out in four hours. So little update. Wow. But my inspiration was basically this self-assessment of our carbon footprint that I did last summer. We've been looking across all of our departments, across the farming, across the winemaking, across the packaging, across sales and shipping, tasting room, all of those things as to how we can have fewer negative impacts and more positive impacts in what we do. And one of the things that really stood out to me when I was doing the research for this carbon footprint assessment is the importance of the package. If you look at the average California winery, and there's this great executive summary of a study done by the California Sustainable Wine Growers Alliance back in 2011, that showed that more than half of the carbon footprint of the average California bottle of wine comes from the glass bottle that it's packaged in. So you can make all sorts of improvements to your energy efficiency at your winery and your use of organic inputs rather than chemical inputs and your cover crops and all of this other stuff. And you could not have the impact that you can have by looking at your packaging. So we moved a dozen years ago to using a lightweight bottle after some soul searching and lots of asking of our customers what they cared about. That's a pretty easy thing, I think, for wineries to do. That saves you 10% of your carbon footprint right off the top if you move to a lightweight glass bottle from a standard glass bottle. By contrast, using one of the super heavy bottles, that's 10% extra of your carbon footprint right there. But that still leaves a lot of impact on the glass. And I think it's intuitive as to why. I mean, glass is heavy. It's fragile, so it requires a lot of cushioning and packaging in order to get to you in good shape. And it requires really high temperatures to melt and to mold. So it just requires a lot of energy to get to you even before you fill it up. And then the extra weight that it adds requires a lot more energy to be used in transporting it to where it's eventually going to go. In that study, they talked about heavy glass bottles, standard glass bottles, lightweight glass bottles. And I couldn't tell if this was sort of an afterthought for them. I read it as an afterthought when I was first reading the report of the three liter bag and box option, which reduced the carbon footprint of your package by 84% and reduced the total carbon footprint of your wine by 40%. And I sort of dismissed this as a viable option for us, because if you go out and look at what boxes of wine sell for in retail around the country, they basically top out at 30, 35 bucks. And 
that's four bottles of wine. So you do the math. That's whatever that is, seven fifty a bottle. We didn't feel like that was going to be viable. Our least expensive wine at the time sold for twenty five bucks. That didn't feel like our market. And I had a friend when I published this, and we got lots of interesting and mostly positive and valuable feedback when we did this carbon footprint self-assessment. It's up on our blog for anybody who wants to see it. We got a lot of feedback. And I got a comment on my personal Facebook page from a friend and wine blogger who said, you guys are kind of in a perfect position to change people's impressions of this if you wanted to make the attempt. And don't you feel like it would be worth that effort? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about his comment and ended up deciding if this really is just an issue of consumer prejudice, we probably are in a pretty great place to attack that. We've got 11,000 wine club members. We've got 40,000 people on our mailing list. We've got 25,000 followers on Instagram and another 15,000 on Twitter and 10,000 on Facebook. And like, we can probably message this pretty widely out there. We could pick a wine. In this case, we chose our Patalenda Tablas Rosé that people are mostly going to drink early anyway. So you don't have to worry about what the shelf life is of the box and take a crack at it. And I thought that we would dip our toe in the water by diverting what would have been 100 cases of bottles into 303 liter boxes of the Patalenda Tablas Rosé from 2021 and published this as a blog, talked about what we were going to do and got more views on the blog, 60,000 views on that blog in a couple of days, got more comments than we've ever gotten on any of our social media posts, likes and comments, all of them positive and thought, hmm, maybe we didn't make enough. So we finally released it by email to our mailing list in mid-February and sold out of those 300 boxes in four hours. So the logic behind it was we have the opportunity to maybe move the needle on destigmatizing a package that has a ton of benefits in terms of the environmental footprint of the package and the resulting wine. Maybe we should try it. And it turned out people were ready. And was it always meant as a trial as like a beachhead to figure out if you want to do this with other wines, or is this something that was like a one-off? No, it was designed to be a dip our toe in the water and see if it works. This wine seemed like a slam dunk to start with, but the idea was that we might ultimately want to do this with all three of our Patalenda Tablas wines. And those are the wines that are the ones that sell for $28 a bottle. They're kind of the base of what we do. They're the wines that we have restaurants pour by the glass. We've been working in alternative packages with them already. We've packaged roughly a quarter of their production in stainless steel kegs in recent years to go out to restaurants and wine bars to pour on tap. So it just felt like the right wine to do that with. But our plan was always, if it was successful, to try it with the Patelin Blanc, which is going to go into bottle and I guess now box in May, and then probably in smaller quantities, but try it also with the Patelin Red that we're going to be next bottling in August. So yeah, it was designed to be a test, but not a one-off. So the test was successful, selling out in four hours and selling to your mailing list where people are already familiar with Tablas Creek and the quality of the wines and they're fans of the brand. How do you think this would play out in distribution or in wholesale where it's on a wine store or grocery store shelf? I think it would be an uphill battle right now. It's just such an outlier in terms of price for where things are. My plan was this first year to sell it direct and see what sort of reactions we got. I mean, I did have probably a dozen different retailers reach out to me and say, man, we would love some of these, which is a great sign. But distribution is hard. Wholesale market is hard. It requires this successful game of telephone where like, we have to tell vineyard brands who markets us nationally. They have to tell the distributor management. 
The distributor management has to tell the distributor reps who are on the street. They have to tell the buyers at the retail level. And then the buyers have to tell the team that's working the floor who has to tell the customer. That's a lot of links in that chain that have to work. So my idea was sell this direct, work on messaging, see if we can get some media to write about it. And we've gotten some good stories about it. I think it ties in very well with our larger mission of trying to have a positive impact on the way that grapes are grown and wine is made and wine is packaged and sold. It ties in with a lot of writers who are, I think, becoming more conscious of their ability to help support wineries that are farming in a way that has positive benefits for the world. Or like I'm thinking of Jancis Robinson's new commitment to mentioning the weight of all of the bottles that she reviews or whatever. There's lots of writers who are starting to become conscious of this. And it felt like it was maybe a moment that could be a tipping point. But I think we're still at least a few years away from this being viable in the wholesale market. I would like to make a little bit available kind of by special order for some independent retail a year from now, but I don't want to be in the position of having to get this on grocery store shelves. We don't make enough wine anyway for that to be viable. It needs to be in places where there's somebody to tell the story and talk about why people who maybe have dismissed this as a viable package should think again. And I noticed the wines that you mentioned were also wines that you have under screw cap. Is that how other producers could also think of that as because of the reductive nature that it's a similar type of packaging to a screw top? Yeah, we've thought about this a lot in terms of the difference between putting something in bottle and putting it in keg. If you're already prepared to bottle it under screw cap, you're probably most of the way there for having a package that's not going to have that slow oxygen transfer with the oxygen that's in the pores of the corks. So I would say that it made us worry less about us having to do something different in the winemaking. Where with canned wines, you'd have to do something significantly different. We haven't seriously looked into canned wines. But it has certainly some of the appeal of moving away from glass bottles. There's a lot more people doing it, certainly locally, than there are looking at wine in box. But I do think this is going to be one of the next frontiers of wine, is figuring out other better ways to get the wines that don't need that glass bottle to the end customer in a package that is lighter weight, easier to transport, less fragile, requires less in the way of inputs of energy. Would you ever consider putting some of your premium wines into this kind of format? And if so, what would you need to see in order to make that happen? So we're going to be tasting these boxes periodically. There's not a lot of super reliable data as to how wine ages for more than six months or a year in these boxes. In general, the plastic pouch that is inside the box, it has a higher oxygen transfer rate than a glass bottle does for sure. So would this be a viable way of putting a wine that we hope evolves for 5, 10, 20 years? I'm skeptical. So it seems to me like this makes a lot of sense for wines that we're expecting people to drink in the relatively near term anyway. I could imagine doing it with, we've done small batch kegs in recent years where we've picked a few wines each year that we might only make 70 kegs of. And when they're gone, they're gone. And we might do the same thing with boxes. I can imagine like the Vermentino that we just released. That feels like something that would be perfect to do in a box. But it would be a small run thing. We'd probably pick a couple of additional wines, try to make enough of the Patelin red, white, and rosé to have in box that there might be some continuity in it, or at least it'd be available for some time, more than four hours. And then hope to make things like maybe the Vermentino or a Grenache Blanc or something that feels right that people might get excited about, make a batch of a couple hundred boxes and 
have that be something that people look forward to, that they snag it, it goes quick, and then there'll be another one at some point. So how do you think about pricing the box? I believe the rosé is normally $30 a bottle or $120 for four bottles, and you charge $95 for the box. How did you think about how to price? So the Patelon rosé is $28 list, so that'd be $112 for four bottles. I mean, it is definitely less expensive to buy one box and one pouch than it is to buy four bottles and four capsules and four labels and four corks, or in this case, four screw caps, plus all of the packaging that goes along with it, the cardboard box and everything else that keeps those bottles from breaking. So we felt like it was appropriate to pass along that savings to customers, that it kind of makes a point that this is something that requires less inputs and those inputs have costs. I think sometimes Wineries can be very opaque about the costs that go into producing the wines that they make. This felt like someplace where transparency would make a valuable point. It just felt appropriate. And already 95, like you mentioned, it's like three times the price of the most expensive box wine that most people probably have ever bought. So I thought it would be good to have it under $100. It just felt like a proportional kind of discount based on the costs of the packaging. And in terms of size, why three liters? Is that a standard bag-in-the-box size, or was there other reasons? Yeah, it's basically the standard bag-in-box size. I mean, there are smaller ones. There's liter-and-a-half boxes, the equivalent of two bottles. But the industry standard is this three-liter bag-in-box. The thing about being an early adopter of something like this, most of the people who have been making boxes of wine have been massive producers who are doing this for the grocery market where they're making hundreds of thousands of boxes at a time. So for them, they can make whatever size they want. They get their own packaging. They're designing their boxes. For us, we had to go with what was off the shelf because we were buying 300 of them. We're not going to go to a packaging company and do a custom run of 300 boxes in our own size and design. That's not feasible at the scale at which we were doing this. So we had to work with what was off the shelf. And what's off the shelf is either liter and a half or three liters. And we felt like given the shelf life, and I don't mean shelf life in the sense of how long it would actually last on a shelf. I mean, the lifespan of a box of wine once it's opened and sitting in your fridge, which is several weeks at least, that having three liters wasn't going to be a particularly daunting amount to consume for somebody who bought a box. It's not that hard to drink four bottles of rosé before it goes bad in your fridge in two months. Like That doesn't feel like too heavy a lift. And if our goal was to minimize packaging, you basically double your packaging if you're doing it in liter and a half boxes rather than three liter boxes. So it felt like A, it was the standard size, B, it achieved our goal of having that smaller footprint. And we could see if we got a lot of pushback from people saying, no, that was too much wine, and we could always adjust from there. But for our first try, we figured that that made sense. In terms of bag in the box, obviously you're grabbing off the shelf. Are there choices? Like, are there premium versions? of bags in the box like that have different OTRs or things like that? Or it's just the standard is the standard? Well, again, if we were big enough to have all of these sort of custom made for ourselves, there might be. But no, as far as we can tell, there was one option. There was one producer. We could get the tap in the middle or offset to the left or offset to the right. It was just like where the little cardboard cutout was done. I mean, that was our choices. You get a liter and a half or three liters. And where do you want the tap to come out? Sounds like a Ford Model T. I like it. <laughs> so <laughs> what about in terms of for producers who want to explore this? Like you talked about the packaging savings, but what about the actual getting the wine into it? Because you're running a bottling line with cork, with screw top, and now you're going to add bag in the box. What additional process to get the wine into the packaging that you have to do at the winery? And how expensive or what kind of learning curve was there for you? 
that's actually the biggest challenge right now is that there are automated filling lines, fully automated filling lines, but they are really expensive pieces of machinery, not viable if you're making a few hundred boxes or even a few thousand boxes. So what we did is we rented this semi-automated filler from the maker of the filler. So it's basically, it sparges the bag to get any oxygen in there out. And then it has a measured fill of three liters in this case. But it's basically like you've got to attach the bag to that nozzle and then it does it. Then you got to detach the bag from the nozzle and it seals up and then you put it down and somebody else is actually physically building the box and taping the box shut. And then somebody else is adding the bag to the box and somebody else is putting the label on. It was super hands-on labor intensive because it was only semi-automated. So it was much slower. It took us four hours to fill 324 boxes. So that's right now the biggest drawback is that you just can't scale that up very well. But we found out after we did it that there is now one mobile bottling line that has added the bag and box capability to it. And that all of a sudden makes this so much more appealing and viable because we were sort of dreading like, okay, what do we do? Say we want to make a thousand next year. Are we really going to spend a day and a half with our whole seller crew just filling bags and boxes? I think when we get up to whatever, a thousand boxes or something, a decent volume, it makes sense to bring that bottling line down from Sonoma, which is where it's based. And then just like you mentioned, we would do three days of filling into cases. And then at the end of that third day, you spend two hours and you do your thousand boxes. And all of a sudden, that automation makes it a lot more viable. So would you relate to how a lot of producers hand bottle large formats that it's a similar labor intensive cost or even higher than that because of the labeling and the boxing up and everything like that? It would be similar. The main difference is that most people probably have a little filler of some sort in their winery, whereas most people do not have a bag and box filler. You'd have to rent that. I mean, the rental is not exorbitant, but it's enough that you notice it. But the machines themselves, these semi-automated fillers are like 10 or 12,000 bucks. Again, it's not a crippling cost, but it's not something that you can amortize over making 500 boxes terribly well. So I do think the same way that you've got to be pretty big before it makes sense to buy and install your own bottling line. Almost everybody under 100,000 cases is using mobile bottlers just because it's so much more efficient. I feel like that's the same thing that will ultimately be true if this ends up being successful and more artisan wineries are doing boxed wine. It'll be made possible by that infrastructure of having a mobile, can you call it a mobile boxing line? Whatever, mobile bottling boxer Great. We're going to trademark that. So after that, and in terms of the actual wine going in, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but in terms of changing the chemistry, you had also mentioned that there was a higher oxygen ingress for a bag in the box compared to a glass bottle. Is that from day one or after they've opened it the first time? No. So it's basically two separate things. That's from day one through the bag. Through the bag. Got it. Wine in a box like that is going to have a shorter shelf life than wine in an unopened bottle. But on the other end, once you open a bottle, just the process of pouring it out means that the space in that bottle is replaced by oxygen. Obviously, it's a little different if you put like a Coravin or, or some sort of apparatus like that, but most people aren't going to do that. They're going to open this screw cap bottle of rosé, they're going to pour a few glasses, and then you've got, what, a couple days before it starts to taste tired, maybe a little more than that if you pour it quickly and stick it right back in your fridge. But the thing about the bag in the box is that pouring wine out of it doesn't expose the wine that's left there to oxygen because the bag just deflates inside that box. So the bag gets smaller and the wine that's in there should be just as fresh as 
what it was when it started. So you could have several weeks at least of good drinking of that opened box as long as you're keeping the box in your fridge, which is more than you would get in the bottle. So yes, you lose some on the front end when it's unopened, but you gain that on the back end once it is opened, which if you're talking about a wine that people are mostly going to be drinking in the first six months or a year anyway, is not a big cost, but a big benefit. And in terms of the liner, and I know that with cans, they have liners that have essentially a shelf life because the acid, the pH will start to eat away at that liner. Is that a concern with bag in the box wines as well? Well, it's a food grade plastic, so it is not supposed to degrade the plastic. But again, plastic has a higher oxygen transfer rate than aluminum or glass. So there are other things that you worry about. So I'm not worried about it degrading the bag, but ultimately, is it a good thing to have wine sitting in plastic for the long term? No, it's probably not. So where do you think bag in the box plays in the entire wine industry? Like what role should it play? It's traditionally been very cheap wines. You're choosing expensive, but shorter lifespan. Where do you think it should play in our entire industry? I just think it should play a bigger role in our industry than it's playing now. I mean, for things that people are planning to drink in the relatively near term, and what's the data? Something like 95% of wine gets consumed within 48 hours of when it's purchased. Most people are not laying down most of the wines that they buy. And for wines like that, if they don't require long aging or benefit from long aging, they should be available in more different packages than they are right now. Glass bottle is neither an efficient nor an easy or logical package for something that people are going to drink in the short term. Hopefully, if there are other producers who start making wines that are not like bottom shelf grocery store wines that are packaged in boxes, it'll open up the idea and the option to people who might not have thought that it was possible or viable. I mean, there are clearly wines that are wrong for it, You're not going to put an ageable red wine that you hope people lay down for a decade or two into a box. It would be the wrong package for it. But there are a whole lot of wines, reds, whites, rosés, that are meant for near-term drinking. And saving the carbon footprint from all of those glass bottles is a net plus. And particularly when you consider that you're also giving people a longer window in which they can open it and enjoy it open. There's benefits on both ends, both on the input end and then on the consumption end. I love the experimentation and the fact that you are being super transparent with your consumers. I think that's great. That connection that you talked about earlier is amazing. What are your thoughts on other alternative packaging? We talked a little bit about cans, a little about kegs. I'm just curious, on are there other experiments you're running or are there other things that you've done in the past that have led you down this path to, to choose bag in the box? No, we've basically done bottles. Obviously, we've thought a lot about bottle weight. We realized that our move to lightweight bottles in between the 2007 and 2008 vintages has saved more than a million and a half pounds of glass from being created and then hopefully recycled, though America's glass recycling rate is kind of dismal. So we've thought a lot about the specifics of the packages that we've used, and we're excited about wine and keg. I mean, that's a zero waste package on a bunch of levels. There's no wasted bottles or, for that matter, wasted boxes. I mean, you're just putting it into a reusable keg that gets emptied and then sent back and washed and sterilized and refilled. So that has a really long lifespan with no waste. I think that has a ton of benefit for restaurants who want to pour wines by the glass. It has benefits for the restaurants too, in that because as you empty the wine out of a keg, it's getting replaced by usually a mix of nitrogen and argon, some neutral non-oxygen gas they can go through the equivalent of 25 bottles and not 
have to pour out the last quarter of bottles that sit open overnight or not pour oxidized wine to their customers. There's no waste for them either. So I think that has a ton of potential in the restaurant world. And then in terms of kind of consumer packaging, we're feeling like the bag in box is kind of the answer for all the people who are like, man, I wish I had a keg of your wine in my fridge. Well, most people don't need 19 and a half liters of a specific wine in their fridge, nor do they have the technology to get it out of that keg or want to install it. But the bag and box feels like a good solution to that. And I'm excited that there's people trying things like wine in cans of various sizes. I think that's a great idea too. So I don't know where things settle. I do feel like this is an area where technology is going to move and consumer sentiment is going to move. I don't love that right now the container that goes inside the box is made from plastic. Plastic is a big issue. I feel like in this case, it's a lesser of two evils than all of the impact of the carbon footprint of the glass, but I'm not excited about having more plastic enter our consumer stream through this. So ultimately, I'm hoping that with the greening of the electrical grid, you'll be able to get bottles that are made entirely from renewable energy that just doesn't exist right now. Be able to move things into these zero waste packages like kegs for the outlets that are appropriate for them. And hopefully, they'll come up with some other material that you could put inside these boxes that's not plastic or is easily recyclable, which isn't the case now. So I think we're still in early days and I'm excited to see where things go. So outside of that container, are there other innovations on the packaging side that you've done or are looking to pursue like different labels or capsules, closures, things like that? One of the things that we did initially, this was not an environmental choice, but it's something that I feel really good about in retrospect is there was a stretch where we were packaging all of our high-end wines in six-bottle cases, which I think is something that you see a lot with a lot of higher-end wineries. We did the analysis and realized that it's basically the same amount of packaging for a six-bottle case as it is for a 12-bottle case. So if you think of the amount of cardboard that you need, so moving everything, even our highest-end wines to 12-bottle cases, basically reduces the footprint of that cardboard by half. We've thought a lot about the sourcing of where our materials come from. So the glass bottle that we use is made outside of Seattle. So it's made domestically. It's made from the highest percentage of recycled glass that is available. So the green bottle that we make is roughly two-thirds recycled glass. The clear bottle is about 30%, which is, again, the highest that's available out on the market. Same thing with the cardboard cases. This is all post-consumer recycled stuff. So I think part of what we're thinking about is trying to create the demand in the end for recycled products. Because right now, that's what's driving, in many cases, the really low recycling rates in America. If you look at glass recycling, according to the EPA, only 31% of glass gets recycled in the United States. And that's despite that it is this endlessly reusable product. I mean, you can have glass that's been melted down and remolded hundreds of times, and it's just as viable as it was the first time. Or washed and reused. Or washed and reused, though that's a little hard because then what are you doing to get the solvents and the labels? And the labels the is the problem, yeah. Capsules, like screw cap capsules. How the heck do you get those things off of your bottle? So I think a lot of people point to, oh, we should just reuse bottles. It's not as easy as just reusing bottles. It's, it's a whole infrastructure that needs to be It built, requires a yeah. whole infrastructure. But just knowing that such a low percentage of glass gets recycled, that made me rethink the viability of glass because 31% gets recycled. and more than 90% of that gets crushed up and used as road base. So only like 3% of the glass that is used gets reused to make new glass. So essentially, 
all of the glass when you're buying glass, unless you know that it's coming from a recycled product, is virgin glass. And so creating systems where there is demand for these recycled products is something that feels to us like it's worth doing and it's important to support. Beyond that, we have not looked in a serious way, for example, at like getting rid of capsules. That's something that wineries have talked about. Or using smaller capsules like Ridge now does. I mean, they use these tiny little capsules that just go over the top of the bottles. I think these are great things to be looking at. And we all need to be thinking about how even a relatively small, relatively incremental change can have a positive impact because these series of incremental changes can combine to have a big impact. There's a lot to think about. Hopefully, as people start to do these changes and experiments, they can be really proactive in sharing that and being transparent with the information so that we can all learn from each other. I have found that people's willingness to share this information has been outstanding. Like anybody who I've talked to who's tried these alternative packaging, I mean, they're, well, what do you want to know? Shout out to Megan Glab at Rhyme Cellars. They packaged their Vermentino in a box a couple of years ago. And she was the first person who I called when we were thinking about doing it. I was like, can you tell me anything about this? And she just laid it all out. It's great. It's one of the things I love about the wine community is that wine is not a zero-sum purchase. It's not like buying a car where you're buying a Mazda, you're not also buying that Nissan. I mean, somebody who buys a bottle of Rime Vermentino or a box of Rime Vermentino is not less likely to buy a box of Tablas Creek. It facilitates the kind of community engagement and information exchange that helps all this work. Jason, to wrap up this episode, we always like to end on a personal note, but since we had you on recently, we have to add a little twist. What is the most memorable wine you've ever consumed and who did you drink it with? Okay, I'm going to answer this a little differently. I'm not going to do the most memorable wine. I'm going to do the most memorable wine evening. So along with Cesar Perrin, I hosted a wine dinner at Burns Steakhouse in Tampa probably a decade ago now. It was a terrific dinner. I mean, it was library vintages of Tablas Creek and Bocastel. It was six courses. It was beautifully prepared. It was executed perfectly. But the night before we hosted that dinner, the guy who had set it up said, okay, you're not going to get the regular Burns experience at the dinner. The dinner is going to be the wines you already know. Like We're going to hook you up and have the two of you go and have a Burns dinner the night before. And just wait, you'll see why this is special. And for people who don't know, I mean, Burns, it maybe has the best wine list in the world. It's a million bottle wine cellar. They have an entire city block in Tampa that is kept at 54 degrees, which has wines going back into the 1940s and 50s that were purchased in Europe by Bern Laxer, the founder of the restaurants now run by his son. And the wine list itself, which is just from the 100,000 bottles they keep in the restaurant, is around 100 pages of closely spaced stuff. It includes the deepest collection of not just the classics from Burgundy and Bordeaux, but old California, old Spain, old Greek, old Italian, incredible stuff, like new, old, obscure, famous. And we sat down and the Psalm started out by bringing us a 1954 Rioja, continued with a beautiful Burgundies from the 70s, brought the first wine that I had ever had from my birth year. I was born in 1973, which was a terrible vintage in Europe. And my dad, who is, for all of his wonderful characteristics, is maybe the least sentimental person that I've ever met. It was like, why would I have kept those? Those were terrible. I did not want a reminder of 1973. Thanks, Dad. So. I had never had a 1973 anything. And I mentioned this to the Sami. He's like, just wait. And so like, they went out, did some hunting, came back with two different 1973s from Chateau Souverain in Napa. And like the whole meal unfolded like this. But the most memorable bottle that came out of it was a wine that we saw 
on their wine list, which was a Pierre Perrin Chateauneuf-du-Pape 1967 half bottle. And I asked César, do you know this? And he's like, Pierre was my great-grandfather, so it probably has something to do with us, but I've never heard of this label. It doesn't say Bocastel anywhere. We asked the Sam about it. He brought us a bottle, and it had an import sticker on the back of my grandfather's retail shop. We're like, okay, this is really suspicious. <laughs> César texted François, his dad, who was like, I have no idea what this is, but I was in middle school in 1967, so I wouldn't have been involved in it. I emailed my dad, who was already asleep for the night. So we didn't get an answer until the next day, but it turned out that this wine was the first collaboration between us and the Perrins, that my dad ended up in the cellars of Jacques Perrin that next year and wasn't yet able to convince Jacques to appoint him their American agent, but Jacques agreed to let him pick some barrels to bottle. And they bottled it under this like semi-anonymous Pierre Perrin label because he didn't want to rock the boat with Bocastel. And my dad had it shipped to Bordeaux and bottled in Bordeaux, labeled, sent to America. And he said that there were maybe 400 cases of it that were made. Whatever this was, 40 years later, we found still three cases of half bottles in the cellar at Burns Steakhouse in Tampa, Florida. They gave us each a bottle to take home with the agreement that we would tell them what the heck it was because they didn't know to tell its story. And I waited and opened it maybe three or four months later with my dad when he got back to California. We drank it together. That was a pretty special capstone on an amazing and memorable evening. What's most amazing is the Psalm had no idea of the history of it and that connection and the fact that you were able to tie all these things together and kind of put it in a bow and that you were there with Caesar Perrin. Really awesome story. No, it was amazing. I mean, the whole evening was incredible. And having that be the thing that came out of it, actually discovering that first Haas Perrin collaboration seemed like it was too good to be true. Well, Jason, once again, thank you for your time and all your knowledge about alternative packaging. We really appreciate you spending time with us and sharing this information with our listeners. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for asking. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>